Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, everybody. Uh, We've got a great one today. You know, for a change, uh, Frank Four, who's been with me before. Frank uh, is a... uh, a friend of mine, and I also believe a national treasure, uh, one of the founders of Slate, great journalist, uh, writes now a lot of cover stories for Atlantic uh, Monthly, probably did the definitive piece on Manafort a while back. He's also been very much on, on the forward edge of talking about these, uh, well, these monopolies like Google and uh, Amazon and, and Facebook. Today, that's what we're going to talk about. He wrote a book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big uh, Tech. He wrote this in 2017. Very influential book, very influential to me. I was in the Senate then and basically called for uh, antitrust action against those companies. And uh, Frank and I have had kind of an ongoing discussion uh, on Facebook, too. And today, that's what, what he's talking about. And he is the most articulate explainer and and you see how inarticulate i am did i just say that he's the most articulate explainer wow okay anyway he (laughs) you're gonna really love this i'm gonna just play now uh just a little clip from it which says a lot so here here this is a, a a clip that you'll hear again later in the show i think one of the things that is also at the core of everything we've talked about and is I think the problem that the essence of, of Facebook is that there's this amorality to the way that it approaches the world. It's possible to be a believer in free speech and also have an ethics that guides your practice, but there's just kind of zero (laughs) ethics in this company. And that's one of the, I think, big revelations that we now have a trove, not just of their research, but of the internal company message boards. And there there are good people who work at Facebook and they were troubled by what they saw. And part of what they troubled them the most is that they couldn't get Mark Zuckerberg to care. Wow. Wow. That kind of says it all, but it doesn't actually. There's, uh, we, you're going to really, really love this interview or this podcast. We recorded this a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and and Meta was announced like the day or two after we recorded this. I think we talk about it a little bit. To me, Meta is is like if you like the Matrix, you'll love Meta. First of all, I don't know what it is. That's one thing, <laughs> but I I think. It's a lot of virtual reality, and there's a commercial for it, which explains nothing. There is a commercial where it has this uh, uh, art gallery-like, and it's kind of neat art. I like the art. They're looking at some art. There's some people, young people looking at art. And then the art uh, kind of starts talking to them, and it gets very three-dimensional. And then they're like in a jungle or something. And then at the end, it says, it's going to be fun. And... One that isn't fun. I didn't don't don't find the commercial fun, and I dare anyone to find that fun. <laughs> if this is this is like bad messaging to me, I don't get what it is. But I think it is Meta is going to be um, as as it progresses. And remember, this is the beginning of it. It's going to go on presumably uh, for years and decades, and to the point where we will have no physical being ourselves. We will be uh, just brains somewhere, and I don't know where. I think that's what meta is. <laughs> I may be wrong, but I think that's what meta is. Anyway, uh, there's that. Uh, one little, uh, just a real, this is a real uh, diversion here. 
So I've been on tour, and uh, it's been great. The other, and I do questions and answers at one point. You submit questions, because there's a lot of questions, and I can't do them all. And I do, and I draw the map of the United States while I answer the questions. So it's pretty impressive if I do say so myself. So one of the questions I got asked was like this really strange question. Were you in Washington uh, on January 6th? And uh, what did you want to do? And I, I, I was. And I was there because my daughter's family was there and we were in their bubble. It was a, I was very lucky as a grandparent, me and my wife. We're able to put the kids to bed. We were able to take care of them during the day. We, it was great from the standpoint of being a grandparent. And I was about, I don't know, a 35-minute drive from the Capitol. And I start seeing this thing uh, going down there. And I did not know how serious this was. At first, I don't think anybody realized that. And we, it's grown more and more serious as the more we've seen. But my first instinct, and this came to me in a flash, was to uh, put clown makeup on, uh, put a big a clown wig on, a, a shower cap for some reason, a, a big pink robe, uh, like a fluffy, fluffy robe, uh, big pink slippers, and uh, to bring a frying pan and go down there and just bop uh, demonstrators or the insurgents, actually, uh, on the head with the frying pan. I, I, I don't know why. I don't know how to explain this, but it just all came to me at once in a flash. This is what I should do. <laughs> this would have been the perfect note. <laughs> I, because there would have been like archival footage. There, there would have been news crews there and they would have caught, you know, uh, this, this uh, clown uh, hitting the insurgents on the head with a frying pan. Now, I look, this was very, uh, it was conceptual. I didn't want to hurt anybody. I never have hurt anybody. And uh, you could really do, do a, a number on someone hitting them over the head with a frying pan. But still, I think that if that, if I'd done that and been able to manage to not hurt people and this footage existed, it would have actually framed the whole damn thing historically. Perfectly, because <laughs> this was un. By the way, this I think this tells you that I've successfully made the transition from senator to comedian or entertainer. <laughs> I think, or that my brain has in many ways. But that was uh, that. That's exactly what I thought of. Okay, Frank Four <laughs> uh, is with us to uh, talk about uh, Facebook, and it's not pretty, folks. It's not pretty, but I'll tell you one thing. You're going to love this one for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
you wrote about Facebook when? 2017, I think? That's when my book came out. Uh, World Without Mind. Great book. Uh, I think a an important book, uh, important to me, if that makes it important, but it's also important to a lot of other people, because I think you identified this. I think you identified this, not just about Facebook, but about Google, Amazon. Can you summarize what you saw there, what what World Without Mind was about? Do you mind mind doing that? Sure. I mean, so Silicon Valley went around masquerading as if it were creating this democratic environment for the world where it was empowering individuals to have a megaphone where they could express themselves. Um, and so it sounded really great on paper. Lots of people in the world, in Washington, in media, were entranced by the utopia that Silicon Valley promised. And it is a utopia of sorts. It, it was it was inter- a negative utopia, <laughs> <laughs> like Logan's Run. What they sold was utopia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what ended up being was something close to the opposite. And so, instead of creating this uh, democratic environment where everybody had agency, what they created were these highly centralized platforms where power was invisible but immense, and so. Uh, you had a handful of engineers in Silicon Valley who had the ability to manipulate people at will. And their goal was to extract as much profit from (laughs) the poor suckers that are us out there in the world. And they did it by using their algorithms, by engaging in doublespeak, and, you know, all the while they, they were constructing this ecosystem that was, in fact, hostile to democracy, hostile to economic empowerment, that it, uh, it, it became something of the opposite of, of what they promised. And they weren't held to account. And they're still not really actually being held to account. I mean, Facebook is facing an incredible public relations crisis, but with all of these revelations about these companies, it's not like we're getting uh, a flood of legislation or regulation that would fundamentally alter their behavior. I get the sense that uh, both the right and, and conservative Republicans and the left now, but um, now it's moving toward the center, are, are going like, hey, this is a problem. Let's do something about it and let's pound the table and do something about it. But I don't see the, the left and the right coming together on this. Do you, do you have any thoughts about I mean, that? They, they could. I mean, when you look, when you look at the hearings um, that they hold on big tech, there tends to be more consensus than you find on virtually any other topic. It's consensus on what the problem is. Is there a consensus on what, how to solve it, though? You know, I actually think that there probably is some broad consensus about what to be done. I think, I think both the left and right care about privacy. I think both left and right care about uh, what these platforms do to kids. And I think that both left and right have reasons to feel politically aggrieved by the manipulative platform that is Facebook. I mean, the, the right feels like it's been deplatformed by Facebook. The left feels like Facebook was just a, a mechanism for proliferating conspiracies like QAnon and for spreading hate speech. And they're, they both probably have a point at the end of the day. And maybe you're right that their diagnosis of what's wrong with Facebook is some, somewhat incompatible, but I think that they could both agree that the power of Facebook over democratic space should be decreased. I agree that they agree on that. I just don't know how they're going to approach that, how they would approach that. I've talked to Sheldon Whitehouse about this, and he says, we just, I said, where where are you guys going? And he says, I don't know, because we don't seem to have the same uh, approach at all. Now, one thing you hear about is Section 230. Why don't you explain to the folks what Section 230 is? So in, in, in 1996, Congress passed a piece of legislation called the Communications Decency Act, which essentially exempted the internet from the laws that applied to every 
other source of media in the country. So the platforms in, in the internet, you could publish or repost content on your, your site, on your platform, and essentially you were exempt from all the other, you, you were immunized from uh, legal action that would be directed at you in other circumstances. So when Facebook publishes misinformation or libelous posts, they're never going to be held to account legally for that until Section 230 is uh, repealed. And and there was a good reason for this, free speech, right? And so that these are platforms, they're not publishers, they're platforms that give an airing to any uh, opinion, any point of view. And that was, when, when was this, 1995 or something? Yeah, 96. And there was also the sense that the internet was different, that the internet was ushering in some sort of new age. So the law itself reflected the utopian spirit that uh, permeates the, the ideology of uh, Silicon Valley. So that's where we were in 1996. We, we had this utopian idea about all this information getting, oh my God, data is just doubling every year. I, I heard that, that, that some kind of rule. Is there a rule of that? There's, yeah. There, I mean, there's so many iron rules about the way that the internet <laughs> is supposed to behave that justifies it being exempt from logic, reason, and morality. By the way, part of the data that's doubling every year, you think of it as, wow, mankind's knowledge is really just increasing, just gangbusters. But a lot of the knowledge is the best way to sell diapers to pregnant women. Or pornography. Yeah. So uh, Section 230 says, uh, basically, you can put up QAnon information, you can put up hate information. The platform is not uh, responsible for that because it's just a platform. People are putting that up. And to bring that right up to date, what you're seeing is that Facebook is doing that. And they're doing that all over the world. And it's in some places, it's uh, causing genocide, which I would think you would, if you were Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> <Human being. laughs> you might go like, hmm, when I went into this, I thought more it'd be more like dating. And yeah. less genocide. Yeah, yeah. Cat <laughs> photos, not people being chased in programs. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of incredible. I mean, I think one of the things that is also at the core of everything we've talked about and is, I think, the problem at the essence of, of Facebook is that there's this amorality to the way that it approaches the world. It's possible to be a believer in free speech and also have an ethics that guides your practice. But there's just kind of zero <laughs> ethics in, in some company. And that's one of the, I think, big revelations that we now have a trove, not just of their research, but of the internal company message boards. And there, there are good people who work at Facebook, and they were troubled by what they saw. And part of what they troubled them the most is that they couldn't get Mark Zuckerberg to care. I mean, he there, there's just like a, a quality to him that he's a he's a stone that he's got a he's got kind of a stone heart <laughs> and and you know, you know it's he, funny because I'm not a reader of uh, body language or personality and when I look at him I think now there's a warm guy <laughs> see yeah. I got it so wrong he's been fooling me for so long so let's talk about the revelations that we've seen in the last. Months we have uh, Haugen, uh, the uh, whistleblower, Haugen. yeah, yeah, uh, Francis Haugen, and then further stuff that's coming out. Let's talk about the latest revelations and then work backward to what it uh, tells us about what you were saying uh, four years ago. Right. So Francis Haugen was an engineer at Facebook who seems to have been one of the employees who was just. Um, dismayed by what the company was 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 doing. And so on her way out the door, she collected this enormous trove of internal documents and she handed them over to the Security and Exchange Commission and to Congress. And what the documents provide is this kind of crystal clear window into not just the internal workings of the company, but kind of its collective brain and into Mark Zuckerberg's brain. And, you know, at the core, I think of the things that are most devastating 
to learn about Facebook is that Facebook has this incredible internal research apparatus. And so it's not just collecting data, it's studying its data. And its research teams were also considering, you know, or it seems to be considering some of the moral questions that are at the heart of Facebook. Like, you know, how was it that QAnon was able to proliferate on Facebook for so long? Why is it that teenage girls end up having suicidal thoughts after um, joining Instagram? And so with its own metrics, you were able to see the ways in which Facebook is doing enormous harm to the world. And then on top of that, you see the conversations that follow the publication of the research, where there are people who are troubled by what they were learning about their own company in the course of this research. And then that research, those conversations travel to the top of the company, and they tend to get shut down by, by Zuckerberg, who is a very, very hands-on, in-the-weeds, imperious CEO. The company is Mark Zuckerberg. And he using some of his more utopian language, uh, finds ways to deflect what he's being told by his researchers and says, you know, if we make these changes that you're proposing, we would be, in fact, shutting down what he calls meaningful human interaction. Now, I let's just pause here on the term meaningful human interaction in the context of Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, it's kind of um, almost an oxymoron at that at that stage, probably. But um, well, you don't know him. I, I mean, don't. he seems like someone. I know what you're saying, though. Um, and, so, <laughs> and so it's, uh, you know, maybe other companies are exactly like this. Maybe if we went to other Silicon Valley giants, we'd find kind of disturbing revelations of this kind. But I think what happened at Facebook is that, um, you know, Facebook, Facebook, we live in this age of political anger, where um, people just want to rip the heads off of their perceived enemies. And we see that every day in the United States. And it's, it's relatively mild here compared to other countries around the world. And you have to ask yourself, why is it that we've entered into this era where political rhetoric has grown so violent? And the answer is, is that our anger has been stoked by Facebook, that when we see these documents, you can see just perfectly clearly how the Facebook algorithm was engineered in order to, to spread anger, to make us even more angry, to, to allow conspiracy to spread. Um, I think, you know, the, the cliche is it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a feature, not a bug. And I think that that is totally true about Facebook, that in order to get people hooked on the platform, in order to get them addicted uh, to their heroin, it exploited this tendency that humans have to, to, to be easily riled to anger. And so it fine-tuned its algorithm in order to make us more angry. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with uh, Frank Four and our discussion of Facebook. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. 
Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. So let's talk about two things then, algorithms and then talk about the, the revelations of late, the specific ones that made us go like, Jesus Christ. Well, one was uh, giving into Vietnam, right? Yeah. Vietnam, yeah. Vietnam said, uh, you can't operate here, Facebook, unless you put out the information that we, the government of Vietnam, want you to put out. Right, which is a good example because it kind of puts the lie to uh, Zuckerberg's rhetoric about free speech, that in the United States, he is reluctant to crack down on hate speech because he's upholding some principle. But, you know, when it came to getting kicked out of a market in Asia, he was only too happy to surrender his principle there. So there's a number of these examples where he's given a choice, more profits uh, or uh, cracking down on disinformation and hate speech. And he always seems to pick more profits. Yeah, there's a great uh, book that just came out by two New York Times reporters, Cecilia Kang and Shira Frankel. And um, they, they say that when they report that when Zuckerberg would end various meetings, he would end them with the slogan, company over country. Now, it's just that's kind of an incredible cell phone, as they say, to make that your your motto. And it's like, it's true that like company over country means company over common good, company over public safety, company over uh, civil discourse, a company over democracy. You know, it's there. It's, 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 it's in his own words, essentially. Yeah. Profits over uh, less uh, killing. <laughs> I'm just trying to make it. Yeah. I mean, right. But I mean, uh, let's talk about the algorithm, right? Okay, the algorithms. Because I'm fascinated with this, and I just, I have a, okay, they control the algorithm. They make their own algorithm, and their algorithm is about figuring out what keeps you on on Facebook because their whole business plan is advertising. And so it's all about keeping you on the platform. And they try to figure out, they know you better than you know you, because you on Facebook make decisions all the time. And the algorithm is a form of artificial intelligence. And it looks at all these choices and said, ah, looks like that this, this guy really likes to get agitated. So let's agitate him with some fake information. Now, this is what bugs me because when they say, yeah, we have no way of knowing <laughs> of keeping track of this fake information, they're the one giving it to people. Yeah. You know, and, and they're interesting. It's an interesting point of comparison that as bad as things are in the United States, their algorithms are fine tuned differently here than they are in other countries. So they actually do, uh, if you can believe it, a better job of um, uh, pruning hate speech here than they do in, say, Ethiopia, where, you know, another place where they're, they're arguably responsible for programs. So the algorithm is, uh, you know, it, it, it has this kind of um, mystique surrounding it. Uh, it sounds like it's this kind of advanced mathematical term. It sounds like, you know, in the past, Facebook has kind of said, you know, we don't actually know how our own algorithms work because there so much machine learning is being fed into it. They're, um, they're these sensitive mechanisms that are always refining themselves. And so the algorithm itself became something that kind of resided beyond our ability to control it. But in fact, the algorithm is tightly controlled by Facebook. And so the illusion of Facebook was that it was, uh, you were just getting this kind of chronological feed of posts from your friends. But in fact, there's a hierarchy that Facebook is imposing on the stuff that you're reading in your newsfeed. And um, they decide to elevate 
certain things and, and, and bury other things. And it's the algorithm that's doing it. And so in part, it's doing it based on this understanding of you that you just described, where it's collecting data about your reading habits, because it's following you all across the web as you're reading. And maybe it's integrating some other data from other sources. And so it's compiling this dossier of your tendencies, and then it's arraying information in order to kind of keep you hanging on, keep you reading for as long as possible. So that's that's one part of it. But then there's this other part of the way that the algorithm works where the control of it is actually highly centralized because Facebook is setting policies constantly that govern the way in which the algorithm is displaying information to you. And so when it decides, you know, we want to make you a little bit less angry or we want to have more cat photos or pictures from your high school friends at the top of your newsfeed, it can turn the dials to make that happen. And and like I said, that's that's policy at Facebook. They turn up the anger, they turn down the anger, they turn up the politics, they turn down the politics. Uh, and they do it in order to keep their numbers where they want to keep them in order to keep to keep growing. Um, sometimes they, they, you know, like you said, during the election, they turn down the misinformation in order to uh, avoid getting caught in embarrassing scandals that might uh, lead to their own regulation. So they have control over it. Okay, th- this to me begs this question, which is if they can fine tune this, if they control their algorithm, if the algorithm is deciding what you're seeing in order to keep you on or do whatever it wants you to do, how is it not possible for the algorithm to go like, oh, no, 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 no. We know that's lying. We know that <laughs> we know that's fake information, so we shouldn't give it to anybody. How how is that how are those two things not connected? That's what I keep trying to figure out. It's like, no, we have this algorithm that finally computes what keeps you on. And keeping a lot of people on is getting them agitated. And and getting them agitated is fi- is feeding them fake information. If if Mark Zuckerberg wanted Facebook to be different, it could be different. There's 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 no reason that Facebook couldn't actually be a more healthy way to uh, to learn about the world. There's just no reason that it couldn't be that way. Has anyone asked him that in in yeah uh, when he's been testifying? Can I, has anyone asked him exactly the question I've asked, which is, wait, whoa, 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 your algorithms are designed to do this. Why can't you design them? to identify hate speech and then go right away, go, nope, 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 nope. Why can't they do that? I mean, in part, it's he wants to maintain traffic to the site so that he can sell ads against it. I know why. I'm not saying, like, why can't you do that? He's somewhat honest about this, which is that he has tremendous power, but he doesn't want to actually fully realize his power. He, you know, he, he doesn't want to be the one who's making decisions about what's true and what's not true. But there's stuff that's true and there's stuff that's not true. And we kind of know that. There's but no- you, yes, <laughs> but like, you know, it's like we live in, in some ways we live in a world that um, where, where, where truth is eroded. Like you do have incredibly partisan <laughs> ideological views of, the way that the world works that claim to be representations of truth. And so, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you one example that cuts uh, close to home for me, which is um, I believe that Russia uh, played a role uh, in the 2016 election. Duh. Yeah. And so I have some basis for saying that, but I think that you'd find a lot of conservatives who would say like that, that's a conspiracy theory. And that I that that's like extrapolating facts, and that that's a there's a contested narrative there that you know Robert Mueller didn't come to exactly the same conclusion that I came to, so that's not true. Maybe they should be you know it's a toxic theory that should be taken down from the web. He kind of did but though. Yeah, I think he could easily do much, 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 much better, and he could create a world that's not so terrible. 
but I also am somewhat sympathetic to his view that he's going to be stuck in naughty questions all the time. The, the idea of truth is not as cut and dry as we'd like it to be. Uh, yes and no, though. For example, saying that Antifa and Black Lives Matter were the ones who uh, raided the Capitol on January 6th. First yeah. of all, Black Lives Matter did an excellent job of hiding their race on January <laughs> 6th, I would say. And, and also, look at the people who are being tried. None of them are Antifa. None of them are Black Lives Matter. We know where they're from. They are on tape. They have visual of them. We know exactly who they are. No one can find a frame of someone from Ant who's known Antifa. No one can find a frame of a Black Lives Matter person. But they're frame after frame after frame after frame of these people who are indicted, and they're none of them are them. How right. can you? How can you? be Mark Zuckerberg go like, you know, I just can't tell the difference. Right. Well, so, I mean, I think that it's also, there's like a further element that needs to be introduced in the way that they govern themselves, which is like, he needs to be responsible. And so it's not just regulating truth. I think that if we, if we make it a question about regulating truth, then he can engage in arguments over that all day long and sure. we're in a philosophical seminar. But I think that when we look at kind of the real world harm that certain uh, conspiracies play, like it, we, we should, you know, that becomes the thing that really should motivate them to clean up their platform. It's, you know, we, we can argue about different, like the, the way that different medicines work, but like when it comes to vaccine misinformation, like you're actually, you know, Biden said this and got in trouble, but I think he was right that like Facebook was actually killing people by allowing misinformation about the vaccine to spread. Like, you know, uh, there might be two sides to like a civil war, but like, you know, that there's certain hate speech that's being used to rile up people to get them to kill their neighbors. Like that's, that's where, you know, things get are wrong. It's like, you, they, they don't need to be arbiters of every single point of fact. But what they do need to do is to recognize that their system is being exploited by bad political actors to cause enormous harm to people. And that's, that's what they should be regulating. I'll give you an example. You were talking about Russia in 2016. There's no question. I mean, Mueller indicted the, uh, the operation in St. Petersburg, right? Yep. So it's not like he didn't say that that was happening. Also, Facebook, which denied taking ads from Russia uh, during the campaign and the immediate aftermath, later said, oh, yeah, 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 we did. And I was in the judiciary hearing with the lead counsel from Facebook. Russia had paid for them in rubles. I believe in the arguments that I'm making. And I believe that they're true, but I also think that there are parts of political discourse where um, you and a conservative could have a different view about uh, like the spending, like a, about an element of Medicare, and like you can have a debate over yeah. whether it works or not, right? And so you could you could extrapolate facts in different way, and you can maybe even have two different sets of, of facts because a conservative think tank maybe producing a version of facts that I find to be incredibly dishonest, but like, do we really want Facebook in the business of saying, you know, this, this think tanks white paper is true or not true. This one, you know, the other sides is true or not. Okay. But what's the distinction between that and there are pedophiles uh, holding children captive in a pizza parlor in DC and uh, killing them and drinking their blood. Yeah, so I think that like there's a pretty good distinction, like that that is that is a crazy theory that's going to cause people to act in a way that is going to have immediate, real world, violent consequences. Okay, so how do you make the distinction between crazy and really kind of crazy, and just an, a difference in? looking at data on how many people have benefited from Medicaid expansion. 
Right. So newspapers, I would submit, kind of manage to do this uh, constantly. And so like the Washington Post publishes an op-ed page where, you know, for the most part, they set guardrails about what's acceptable difference of opinion and what's like an, what's an unacceptable opinion. And so I don't think that the Washington Post would, would publish like a pro Pizzagate op-ed, yet they would publish an attack on Medicare that might be dis- disingenuous and tendentious. <laughs> right. um, it's like, it's not that hard to, to, to make these well, distinctions. That's, that's kind of what I'm saying. I'm, what I'm yeah. saying is the problem isn't the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which is kind of lying <laughs> all the time. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, the problem is the stuff that stokes violence and stokes uh, things like January 6th and says that the election was stolen and says Dominion uh, changed the votes and that Smartmatic was their, did their uh, software in their machines and it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Just- right. well, we, we have like, we, ha- we, we have evidence of a real world example of how they were able to do better, which was during the 2020 election, they had, like an integrity team that did a great job of shutting down foreign influence campaigns on the platform and that tweaked the algorithms to try to, you know, curb the conspiracy theories during the election. And then as soon as the election was over, they gave up on that project. Yeah. And why can't Congress go like, um, why did you give up on that project exactly? And could you not do that again? Uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, thank you for appearing today and answering these questions honestly. Oh, yeah. wait a minute. I'm sorry. You're Mark Zuckerberg. So I think I said, I, I think I've said, I've argued in the course of this podcast that Facebook could do better, but I don't actually believe in my heart that Facebook could be reformed so that it's not a pernicious entity. I think there's actually something pernicious at the core of it where ah, um, that's unless true. you. I mean, that's that's what you've written. I, and let's go to that. Let's just go to that. It would have to become an entirely different company where it was making editorial decisions, where it got got rid of the like button and, and actually shut people out because they're they're um, you know you can deplatform the president, but are you going to deplatform every crazy uncle in America who has like a ridiculous opinion? You know, the democratization of opinion that Facebook has, has proliferated is, you know, it has advantages, but, it, it, you know, for every Arab Spring, you know, there, it, there are like four genocides <laughs> that have been perpetrated by it. Like, I, I, I'm just very skeptical that you can have an entity with the scale that Facebook has, with the mission that Facebook has, and I think it's always going to be a menace to civilization. We don't have one newspaper. We have a diversity. A plur- uh, there's pluralism when it comes to our news sources. The problem with Facebook is its um, is its scale and the influence that it has on the people who consume information through it. And so, I, I think that I think that Facebook is an antitrust problem. It's a monopoly problem, and I think actually that's the way in which the government is going to deal with it ultimately. And you're talking sort of these platform wide, like Google and Amazon and all those are anti-competitive. Yeah. But Facebook, I think is maybe the simplest case of them all because it did so much to acquire its competitors and to acquire this kind of dominant position that it holds by buying WhatsApp and by buying Instagram. Instagram. And so it's, it's actually a pretty easy company to, unwind and i think if you were to dismember the company in that sort of way it would fade relatively quickly because facebook is the source of his um is the source of everything for him but he's trying to move beyond it into becoming a metaverse company whatever that means what does that mean what metaverse is that what he, is that his phrase it that's that's his phrase and so uh you know, if you're accused of being kind of a creepy, irresponsible company, why not go to the next stage of creepiness and irresponsibility? <laughs> um, 
And so it's a company that is supposed to aggregate virtual reality, augmented reality with, with kind of with social media. What, and nobody exactly knows what it means, but uh, he gave a kind of a humorous, uh, well, unintentionally humorous demonstration of uh, what the metaverse would look like kind of strolling through his, seems like his home in Hawaii as a virtual character, Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I, 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 see I, would, I would explain it in greater depth, but I don't understand it in any greater depth. Really <laughs> you know, that's a good rule for all my guests. Thank you. <laughs> I think we're going to establish that. Don't explain anything you don't totally understand. Uh, okay, so, well, that antitrust is uh, an area that uh, there is an antitrust subcommittee on judiciary. And uh, talk to Amy Klobuchar about some of the other platforms as well. you see anything there? Is there any there there? Again, I, I share your, uh, I think your skepticism that anything will necessarily emerge through Congress. But what the Biden administration has done is that they've appointed three pretty terrific individuals to their highest antitrust positions. So the head of the Federal Trade Commission right now is a woman named Lena Khan, who's actually very young, who wrote the most re- widely read article in the history of the Yale Law Review, and has kind oh, of yeah. come in, she's come in and she's um, uh, she, she kind of redefined antitrust in a way because it had always been like if the if you can get things cheaper, if the customer yeah, gets yeah. things cheaper, then it's not antitrust. That's right, and so that <laughs> so she's. Um, I think all three people I'm about to describe can would self-identify as um, disciples of Louis Brandeis, who was the Supreme Court justice appointed by Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was on the court through uh, the, the uh, Franklin Roosevelt presidency, who was who kind of the, the godfather of antitrust, who argued uh, that bigness in corporations was a curse, and that rather than focusing on what uh, companies did to consumers, which is kind of what antitrust has been obsessed with since the 1960s. He worried more about what monopolies did to the democracy, what they did to people who make things, what they did to workers, what they did to Like producers. monopsony. He looked at monopsony yeah, like exactly. Amazon, which is sort of the only purchaser of anything right. <laughs> that but people produce. What, when it, when it comes to something like Facebook, the democratic problem that Facebook poses for him would be a monopoly problem. It would be an antitrust problem that mm-hmm. its power and its destructiveness are kind of one and the same. And so that's the thing that we should be focusing on, I think he would have argued. And so there's Lena Khan at the Federal Trade Commission. There's um, a Columbia law professor named Tim Wu, who's uh, over in the White House, sure. who wrote the executive order that Biden did on antitrust back in July. And then they uh, there's a guy up nominated to be the head of the antitrust division of the justice department called Jonathan Cantor. And kind of, it's, it's a real trifecta that we haven't seen in a long time, maybe ever where you've had, you've had people in the three highest antitrust positions in the, the government who are all singing from the same hymn book. So you're saying not Congress, but the FTC, the administration. And in justice department. Yeah. In justice department and that they can do this through the courts. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, Frances Hogan sent her papers to uh, the Facebook papers to the SEC, to the Security and Exchange Commission. Right. And so like, she was essentially accusing them of having committed white collar crime. And so, you know, we can sit around waiting for Congress to pass new laws all day long and or, or all year long or all decade long or all century long. And it might not ever happen. But there are laws on the books that would allow us to, that just need to be enforced. And that if you have active cops on the beat, a company like Facebook is in trouble. So that provides some, some hope. And you see those actors appointed by uh, President Biden as the right people to do that. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. Oh, let's keep following them, shall we? <laughs> right. Well, it's, uh, you know, I, it, one of the things that happens is that you have big pieces of legislation that are trucking through the House and Senate, 
And that's exciting. And those have transformational possibilities, but they're only part of the story. And we live in, you know, for the last couple of decades, we've had Congresses that don't actually do that much legislating. And so you have an executive branch that has grown ever more powerful. Uh, but one of the places it hasn't, its power hasn't really fully been realized, or we've forgotten about its power, is that there are these agencies that can enforce laws that are on the book. And if you have activists there who are pressing hard and enforcing the law with passion, they can do a lot of good. Well, listen, uh, Frank, uh, thank you so much. See you in the metaverse, Al. Uh, Yes, I can't wait. I mean, I can only imagine how much more delightful the virtual you is. Um, it's very similar to the real me. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I, I don't right. know. I don't know. Okay. Uh, thanks, man. Okay. Thanks, Al. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.